Hello and welcome to the 40th, yes, the 40th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Sunday 8th of February 2020 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We continue our reading of Paul Cockshot's critique of the book. This week I have the new patrons Ben Molyneux Hetherington and Goshi to thank. If you too would like to help keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang gang? From $5 a month, you get two Patreon-only episodes every month, the right to vote on the reading group series and other random stuff too. This week's Patreon-only episode is an interview with the commie games designer, Calistia. If you don't have any spare dough, just spread the good commie word and give me a lovely raving iTunes review. Also, make sure to join us every Saturday on the YouTube channel for the live recording of the new 18th Brumaire reading group series. Okay, to the discussion. This point's interesting. This, of course, like the argument of Kowski in the 1920s, is it valid to say that the CPs represented petty proprietors when in power? When there is some truth in the extent that so long as petty peasant production existed, it created wings within the CPs who defended its interests, Bakaran, Gomuka, Dung. But these were just one wing, and in most cases, they did not come out on top. In the USSR, private peasant agriculture was largely eliminated by collectivization. And during the 40s, uh, the 50s and 60s, the state farms expanded at the expense of the collectives. In Poland, after 56, the petty prior rings did not always come out on top, but but that was generally not the case. In the DDR, the SR, the the CSSR, and the Bulgarian state or collective agriculture was the rule. The crisis of the socialist system, Poland aside, was not generally precipitated by the demands of petty proprietors and agriculture. It was the identification of state bureaucrats with petty proprietors. Petty proprietors is an unconvincing throwaway phrase, not justified by any argument, to which I say, horseshit. Yeah. I, go cut, it go seems cut. like a total misrepresentation of McNair's point, right? Because I don't think McNair was saying that the representatives of the petty proprietors directly triumph, but the fact that the proletariat in these countries had a very weak social basis meant that political strategy by the socialists was determined by the strength of the petty proprietors, right? Right. Like they had to adapt to that reality. And the other thing that that McNair hinted at and that uh, this is actually obscuring, is the petty proprietor class produced most of the leadership, not just the leadership that he's listing. Mao is the descendant of petty proprietors. Stalin is the descendant of petty proprietors. That is their class origin. Right. Yeah, it just it just reads to me like a, a really bad faith. Or it, it's, a, it's a straw man kind of a McNair's position. And like you could do pretty good you know, backing up of a concept of, you know, organizational property. This is something that Eric Olin Wright draws out in a concept of rents. He, he actually approaches it slightly different than McNair, but it, it, the critique kind of serves a similar purpose in both of them. You could even say that McNair's version of it doesn't fold it into class enough and m- might give, you know, Leninist forms of organization a pass, but at least he attempts it. At least he's trying to do something like this, you know. <laughs> Cockshot uh, doesn't want to engage with that 
stuff. I don't know how much McNair flushes that out. It's true that McNair, you know, is light on the social argumentation when it comes to these things. I don't think McNair is like literally talking about petty proprietors. No, not uh, like there's, literally. There's a similar like, argument I mean, made like, by Morris Lee and uh, Bread and Authority. But is is the point that he's making is like that if you wanted to get ahead under the the USSR system or whatever, you what did you become? You couldn't become like a an entrepreneur or you know some kind of petty bourgeois shopkeeper. You became a bureaucrat, and the bureaucrats were disliked, just like you know the business people were disliked under capitalism. Is that not? McNair's general point. That's part of it. I think the problem is like McNair actually kind of mixes three arguments into one, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to take this full throated because a full throated version of this, the petty proprietor argument is the state capitalist argument. And one of the reasons why, one of the things that the state capitalists will say is that because of the collectivization of exploitation within the system, the entire Soviet Union actually worked, worked like a small shop. There, there is an alternative formulation, which is a sort of like bureaucratic collectivism as uh, pre-capitalism or as like tributary mode of production kind right. of analysis. This is the explicit position by Robert Brenner, actually. Derek, when we did our episode on Fitzhugh on Swampside, mm-hmm. I, was, I was looking into this. And yeah, uh, Brenner has what I think is probably the winner, is that it was this weird kind of modernized, you know, bourgeois but not capitalist i don't know if it's bourgeois it's alienated in a capitalist way but you know maybe not strictly you know bourgeois in the way that we understand in capitalism but it serves as a form of of you know of of a bridge to capitalism as a transition to capitalism essentially and so you have a parallel of exploitation you don't have to call it capitalism in order to accept that essentially to accept a petty proprietor analysis and and i would say that like I'm sorry Sorry to keep going, Puya, but just to flesh out my point about Lars Lee and why I think that this argument is, is being made not just about the state bureaucrats, but about the, the peasantry, is that, um, you know, a lot of the state's origins are during the Civil War. Like, a lot of the proletariat is being just decimated. And mass democracy, to the degree that it was act- actively pursued at all, meant an orientation towards peasants and towards you know, the mass of the people, the majority of the people in the what would become the USSR. I mean, that's what the mass line stuff in Maoism is about, too. And, but, and like in both the USSR and in China, the proletariat was a small part of the population. The vast majority. I mean, in some ways, until the almost the 90s in China, the vast majority of the population was peasants. So that yeah. you have that, like, like waving that off is like, well, that was also true for like most of the 20th century in the, and particularly in China, which is the model that I'm thinking that Cockshot really wants to glom onto. Uh, Largely basically puts some of the foundations of the Soviet state in what he calls the food supply dictatorship that forms during the civil war in war communism. And this was essentially performing an old tributary function of providing central authority enough to prevent famine. That's what a lot of tributary, like not not even central authority to like a high degree, because there was a lot of room for for smaller, you know, warlords and this sort of thing, you might say. But like just enough stability to prevent the worst from happening. Basically, Lars Lee seems to argue that this is a foundational moment in the Soviet state and that that's where the petty proprietor, even more so than, you know, 
being all managerial bureaucrats, even more than having to keep the specialists happy to some degree. Is that like orientation towards the peasantry in this really, in this really weird way. And so like the zigzags about the actual peasantry that Cockshot is talking about, it is true. And it's hard to say that it was just a peasant supremacist state or something when Stalin liquidates the peasants. <laughs> like, yeah, not at all. It, 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 yeah. It, it's, it's a response to the peasant power. It is exactly. not peasant power directly. That is like exactly. absolutely not the case. Yeah, so it's, it is a really difficult argument to get a grip on, but the abstract category of petty proprietor, at the very least, can give us some broad class category that covers all of these dynamics, because what it isn't is a proletarian state. Okay, moving on. He goes into a few points here that I don't think are that interesting. One of them, he turns a bit, gets all mad MMT here about deficit financing and the right to own currency. All he was saying is that, you know, you could take the same budgetary equation and look at the other factor there, tax, rather than uh, government expenditure. That's all he's saying yeah. there. It's a basic mathematical point. But like he, he, what, he, what he's doing is saying that McNair's definition of, you know, the common core of the bourgeois state is kind of weird and is trying to avoid a confrontation with the concept of democracy, which I think, you know, he really does start getting at something. Say that again. Uh, what do you mean? Well, let's look at McNair's criteria for the bourgeois state. Because I, I, I do sort of think that that's interesting. Like, let's just uh, scroll up and take a look at it. So, Cockshot Quiz McNair is saying, the inner secret of the capitalist state form is not bourgeois democracy. Rather, it has three elements. One, the rule of law, i.e. the judicial power. Two, the deficit financing of the state through organized financial markets. And three... The fact that capital rules, not through a single state, but through an international state system, of which each national state is merely a part. All right, ignoring point two, because again, why are, you know why focus on that part of financing? What about the armed body of men? It's weird he left that out. Well, like the thing is that McNair is arguing what makes the bourgeois state distinctive. You know, he's not looking at the bare definitions for a state. That's like that's basic to the category of state here. Like, and it is addressed in his idea of, of, you know, extreme democracy or whatever. So I kind of think Cockshot's a little, it's not like hey, nothing Tom, in the book is set, is set on that. Hey, Tom, are you going to, are you going to school Cockshot on a uh, deficit spending? <laughs> because I, 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 bet, I bet Tom's head blew off when uh, Cockshot was talking. <laughs> the, state, the state needs uh, the money to, uh... <laughs> Through taxation, the state needs its money. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay. I, I don't think what I don't think what saying there is actually incompatible with MMT, though. Right? Wait, what, He's saying the that? power to tax is more important than that, and in particular, the power to levy taxes in money rather than in kind. And no, no, part no, of no. MMT is levying taxes in order to control the money supply. No, no, that's totally that's totally MMT. But there's another part where he says that the state needs to tax to be able to deficit spend. And uh, right. Without tax revenues, there would be no way to pay the interest on the national debt. And without the obligation yeah, yeah. to pay taxes in domestic uh -huh. currency, there would not be the ability to issue money that was generally acceptable. So it's the first part there that I guess MMT would be like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. But the one part where he's like, they need to be able to levy taxes in the money. 
that's 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 straight out of MMT, and I think that's correct too. You know, to be able to establish a currency. I don't know. This is like a minor quibble, and it just serves to show like how McNair's uh, McNair's definition is a little weird. And I don't know. Like, yeah. I feel like sometimes McNair is just like like some of the things he says. I feel like he's just like I don't know why he says it. But this is this is supposed to be the conditions. This is supposed to be a, a conceptual understanding of what underlies all bourgeois states, fascist and liberal, or you know otherwise re, you know illiberal and reactionary. But all of the you know states where the state form has been to a great degree you know, remodeled for, for bourgeois class interest. To defend like, McNair on this just for a second, he's saying that these are the secret form of bourgeois democracy. I mean, the bourgeois capitalist state. Deficit financing of the state through organized financial markets is unique to the capitalist states. The power to tax in, in kind is not. That's right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And it seems to be a similar problem uh, to Cockshot's criticism of McNair for not talking about the special body of armed men. Again, that is a that's a general property of states. It's right. not specific to the capitalist state form. Right. But what Cockshot gets upset about is, you know, there's no reference to like, you know, governance and the like norms of governance. Because, and, you know, I, I do think that there's something here because when, even when you look at like illiberal capitalist states or straight up fascist capitalist states, like in fascist Italy, you know, the grand council of fascism had like, you know, electoral apparatus and stuff. There are these like perverse forms of, I don't know, more or less like parliamentary for like forms that you get. What will end up being called here oligarchic institutions, you know, electoral institutions of some kind. It's not, I guess, if you're looking for like the bare minimum, I guess that's not perfectly true across the board. But like, for the most part, even when you have really extreme dictatorships, they take on a kind of presidential form or like at least electoral pretension. Like, I think he's onto something here. I can't see how that's unique to capitalism, though. Like, if you're going to to deal with the essence of the bourgeois state and not the state, government was not unique to the bourgeois state. And and while you might have a point about the the, the way those forms always play out, like it, it does seem like it's very hard to have a like a monarchical bourgeois state. I don't know why you can't tell me why though. Like I, I don't have a like neither you nor Karshot nor me. I, I actually agree with you, but like I don't have a reason why. Right. <laughs> so, no, no. Same, same. And uh, there are Marxists that try to derive this from the very capital form, the I forget what that's called. What's the state derivation debate or something, you know, and I haven't hit my like level up on bong rip to get there yet. So I, I haven't touched that. Do we just try to like derive the state from capital? Yeah. Abstractly from MCM prime. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I'm... It is an interesting idea. I'm not yeah. sure that's going to tell us what we need to know, but what if it did? That would be crazy. Yeah. This is why uh, we can't do the engineers yet. Yet, yet, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, exactly. like, I don't know. You can look at stuff like the July monarchy, right, and like how that fell apart because it wasn't compatible with bourgeois power. Yeah, and there yeah. are weird states like Britain where you have quasi-ceremonial monarchies that still have some governmental functions that still exist in capitalism, but those are really weird. <laughs> they also still have some weird feudal elements hanging on in their form of capitalism, like Lord. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. They had no la- no land reform. There was never land reform in England. Never land reform, yeah. Most la- farmers in England are tenant farmers. They're not actually land-owning farmers. There's yeah. There's also absolute monarchies still. Yeah, Swaziland, I think. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. But like and here, the, Derek... Like Saudi Arabia and like... Is Saudi Arabia properly speaking capitalist? I actually, I, I this, that's a real question. I don't know. Like, I, I really don't know. Like, like internally, not externally. Like, it functions in the world market as a capitalist state in the competition with other cap with, with other states. But it doesn't, like, though. It doesn't. It's just like it just sells oil. It doesn't produce anything else. Yeah, it's literally, so, it's a monopoly. It's a mon- but I think internally there is shops and something. I was talking to a guy from. Like United Arab Emirates, feudalism too, though. United Arab Emirates is that place is definitely capitalist. Yeah, Yeah. but I I was talking to him, and he he was saying that, like, I I think it was his father. His father was like works as a small shop, you know, selling like clothes or something, a tailor or something like this. And they had like some guy come in. He said, "How's business going?" And he was like, "Oh, actually, it's not going very good at the moment." And the guy was like, "From he was like a spy." Or, you know, secret police guy says, okay, I'm writing you up a fine, like, for, like, 500 quid for actually talking down the economy. Like, so I think it is, they are kind of fairly capitalist, if, like, yeah, no. totally messed up at the same time. I mean, it looks it looks rather capitalist, like, the... Yeah, uh, but it's, but it's weird having been there. Like, so, so Bordiga's uh, criterion for, you know... Agri- for uh, uh, capitalism was that agriculture gets down to like 5%. Right here we have like agriculture at 2.6%. We have industry at 44.2%. Services at 53.2%. So like, I, like that's, that's GDP by sector, I guess. So industry and services, that's, that's the big sectors. Um, yeah, capitalism. The GDP is enormous. The, sur- the surpluses are huge. And it's not just oil revenues that have been like increasing contributing, even though petroleum is important enough that the rest of the economy is called the non-petroleum sector. So <laughs> like, yeah, and I mean, I don't think you can have like a GDP that high just from petroleum. I mean, Iran yeah. is like the largest petroleum exporting country and that's like, or it's the second largest and the GDP there is not, not very high. Yeah. Or it's, it's like medium. But they have, they're massively prevented from developing. I, I think they have much less sports than Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia are off the charts, man. And it's per capita, remember, as well. Per capita Iranian exports, are, exports aren't probably close. They're probably like, I don't know what the st- figures well, are, I but I wouldn't be surprised if they're a fifth of, of Saudi exports per head. Well, I know Iran is the second largest exporter. But, but having spent a lot of time in the Middle East, I will say that what's weird about those societies is like they import capitalism in, like, and I, I, I mean that like literally, like if you go to Dubai, the Emiratis aren't working shit there. Like, well, they usually work like government jobs. Yeah, they they all work in like the government sector. Are they like still kind of in like quasi nomad? That like two percent of like nomadic. Like everybody else is coming in from the outside. Like modernity, like capitalist modernity is imported there. And like Saudi Arabia is not that different. And that, that, that's what makes those societies kind of weird because like they, they function like capitalist states, but they literally bring it in like whole cloth. I think they import their labor force. Yeah, they do. And like, it's kind of like weirdly racial. Like they have these like racial laws where like, like they make sure Arabs like get better jobs. Yeah, they do. So, like, I'm pretty sure Arabs, like, own most of the businesses 
or they work at a government job which is high paying and then they import all their labor from india and africa their management from europe and america uh, you know yeah saudi arabia absolute monarchy do they have electoral activity they have some virtually powerless municipal elections like i think they're less democratic than the dprk which is saying yeah. something no, for real. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, Leninism takes tends to take more electoral forms than this. So I think I think actually the what McNair is getting at is that the common core of the bourgeois state, you know, doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to take what Lenin thought was the purest expression of capitalism in, in politics form, which is the you know bourgeois republic or what have you. <laughs> well, I think I think there's a little bit of like you know it's more likely that it'll take that. Not necessary. It's not part of the common core of the bourgeois state. It's it's the dominant form, you might say. Yeah, like I, I don't think it's like, you know, you know, like I said earlier, it's like it can go this way, or, you know, it can go, you know, there's a little bit of chance. I have a treat for you all here. This is no woman, no cry on what? Saudi state television. Anybody want to hear it? Why not? Uh, I want to yes. fucking hear this. That's fucking awesome. I wish I had some hash. That's some Galabea action. Wow. I didn't know I needed that, Tom. Thank you. All right. So the point we're getting at here is that perhaps McNair is right that the very basics of the bourgeois state, they does not require the stuff that Cockshot wants to talk about. However, I do think even if it's not the very common core of the bourgeois state, you know, the tendency is clear to have these pseudo democratic bodies, which I might add happen to be the only forms of like continent wide society that have any pretense to democracy you know that that even like try to leverage that and use that as their like if not foundational myth then in an, an adoptive version of that myth because uh cockshot goes where i go and he goes to the federalist and he makes that basic opposition between um democracy and republic that you find in aristotle's critique of the old ancient Greek constitutions and typology of those constitutions. I don't know. I just want to stress before going into this conversation, because nobody in the conversation is saying this, that the, the only forms of broad democratic institutions that we've had that have stretched from across a continent, more or less, are these form of like deceptive, anti-democratic, oligarchic, bourgeois, Republican forms. This is the only kind. And so like these critiques are good and insufficient. I think you'll understand why I'm framing it that way. All right. The key is to replace the illusory idea of all power to the Soviets and the empty one of all power to the Communist Party with the original Marxist idea of the undiluted democratic republic or extreme democracy as the form of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And this is McNair talking, by the way. The present task of communists and socialists is therefore not to fight for an alternative government. It is to fight to build an alternative opposition, one which commits itself unambiguously to self-emancipation of the working class through extreme democracy, as opposed to all the loyalist parties. This is cockshot talking now. This is superficially correct. Certainly in impetus, it goes in the right direction, but it contains real ambiguities, which only become evident when he lists his demands. When he does, then McNair makes a complete hash of it and shows that his conceptions of political democracy have completely failed to break free from bourgeois republicanism. Bing, bing, bing. 
I'm going to quibble here and argue that the phrase democratic republic is wrong from the start. It couples two quite different ancient models, those of Athens and those of Rome, state forms, which are radically distinct in terms of the degree of popular power that they permitted. The Republic is Rome reborn. It is senatorial power. It is presidential power. The first magistrate, the political form of the dominant imperial state. It is no accident that the slave owning classes of the United States adopted a Republican constitution, which took Rome as its model. The social democratic movement should in republics like the USA, Germany, and France be seeking to overthrow the Republican constitution and replace it with democracy. In bourgeois monarchies like Britain, Sweden, or Holland, to raise the slogan of republicanism rather than going straight for democracy places you no further left than radical liberals. And I think he's right. And honestly, I think this problem goes back to Marx, which I don't think Cockshot even realizes. Well, McNair realizes this and frames the book as such as to create a sort of vagueness around this in a way. And like, this is something that a lot of Marxists don't talk about that clearly is how Marxist politics change. When Marx is more of a Republican in his early years and then kind of says, well, we need to go beyond this, you know, following the sort of course of when you look at the history of the French Revolution and stuff with the Paris Commune, what have you, like the, of 1871, the one that Marx saw, you know, there's an evolution in Marxist thought. Yeah, there but, is, but that 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 weird conflation of the Greek and Rome, uh, the Greek of uh, the Greco and Roman model actually exists in both. And true. I'll tell you why: the dictatorship principle is a Roman is a Roman Republican principle. Yeah, and so importing that into the a kind of Grecian radical democracy, except this time truly radical, like it's not just you know the elite clashes of the Greek, you know the Athenian Republic. It's everybody. Or at least all proletariats, and then everybody. Once the once the the economic modes are changed, you still have a Roman model, a Roman imposition of power with with a class magistrate that we all struggle with. That that ambiguity in the in the idea of the dictatorship of a class, which is almost a contradiction in terms, except that we kind of see it in the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, sort of. It it haunts why the democratic republic squished together. I think. Right. I think that does go back to Marx. And I think we do struggle with it because it's like, what do we mean? What do we mean by a, di- by a dictatorship? Because dictatorship is a magistrate position. And we're arguing against the need for that. Are we arguing against it? Well, I mean, if you believe that then in the Athenian democracy, the democracy position and in a classless society, that's the other thing. Because magi- Roman, Repul- Roman republicanism, senatorial and magister- magisterial power are classed explicitly. You can only be in them if you are of certain classes and you'll become a certain class by being in them. So a classless society cannot have those kind of divisions. And that's like, you know, when anarchists get talking about the new class, if you look at this uh, Roman DNA to this, they aren't wrong. You know, a lot of uh, Aristotelian kind of politics is looking towards like a sort of middle class ultimately. The sort of old bias, and this isn't even just from Marx. This is from uh, the way that the American Republic sort of develops and takes on these democratic pretensions. Probably consolidated best in uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. 
which Marx was a, a student of. I think it's all tied up in the fact that when you're talking about democracy or republic, the old thing that like Montesquieu was getting at, whenever the the great Baron Montesquieu came up in the debates around the Federalist, he was always invoked to say, look, you can't have a big ass republic. That shit's gonna fail. That it just, you know, life doesn't work like that. It's nice for a city state, but you need something more authoritarian and less representative of even, you know, the best in society or what have you. You're going to probably need something monarchical if you want like a something from sea to shining sea or something. And the classic argument of the Federalists is that, well, you can have these little laboratories of, you know, more pronounced electoral activity, but you could create what uh, de Tocqueville will backdate, you know, later as a sort of aristocracy of lawyers. It's like a pseudo aristocracy of, of lawyers. And that will allow the cream to rise to the top. Therefore, you can have national affairs cited by essentially like a lawyer class. And, you know, that will like hit that Aristotelian sweet spot where you don't just literally have rule of the rich themselves and end up with monarchy. You know, you don't even have like full military control. You have this sort of like, you know, middle class of sort of uh, civil servants that will end up becoming, well, I mean, they didn't even think of it as middle class. They, they thought of this as like, these are, these are the great people in our societies. This would be the natural aristocracy. Yeah, know? they thought of it as the natural versus the artificial aristocracy. Right, exactly. And even Jefferson, who is you know, supposed to represent this opposition as current to the Federalist, you know, was basically bought into that vision too. And so that sort of Jeffersonian reaction to the Federalist that never overcomes the Federalist ends up sort of defining a lot of the spirit of American, what I would call American democracy. And it's a myth, of course, it's not democratic in this Aristotelian sense. And, you know, maybe the way that it adopts democratic norms is opportunistic, but there's nothing like this. There's, there's nothing, you know, like the only comparable institution is like the EU maybe. And the EU is toothless compared to the, the U.S. feds, you know? The EU is like an Articles of Confederation kind of deal compared to the power that the federal government of the United States has. I, I think it's telling that Cockshot, you know, who's what, a Scottish author, you know, is pivoting to talking about the exact things that I talk about in my own context, uh, thinking about, you know, the government in the country that I live in. It's telling that he goes here. It's telling that Marx learned so much about democracy from de Tocqueville or what have you. I don't know. It's all just hitting me right in my in my world where McNair, you know, for the most part is really talking about something more remote. This gets at some fundamental issues that I had with McNair's presentation of, you know, extreme democracy and essentially Cockshot calls him on not having an alternative to representative democracy. That all power to the Soviets, yeah, no. Basically, we have to rely on representative forms. I don't know if McNair ever really says this. But it feels like that's what, like, the Republican model is what we're arguing for, particularly when you look at, like, his other proposals, like the Council of, like, his Council of Nations and stuff. <laughs> like, right, right. like mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. that's representational. If we were truly radically democratic, it is dangerous. It is, and this is where the, the Republican argument has a point, and what I think one of the reasons why Cockshot doesn't lose it. Because if we're truly radically democratic, the self-autonomy of like ethno groups, you know, nations, is eradicated. It would be. There's no way around that. Why? 
Why? Because you have to represent those interests separately from just the masses of people. And the masses of people will be represented by the dominant culture of the area, which will become democratically enforced because that will be the assumptive norms of, of the rules. So like if we had a world system today and we were all things, we would be dominated by China and India. That's assuming that you don't have any, you know, it's just a pure crude democracy. Uh, but that's what we're arguing for. Yeah. yeah so Are the, we? Not not even in not even in Rome. They still had other people in Rome. They had sortition, yeah, yeah, but they yeah. also had like out that the democratic republic is a hybrid system between Athens and Rome. And if you want real extreme democracy, you cannot mitigate it. You are mitigating well, it by imposing a outside system that is fundamentally different from it, and then saying it's the same thing. To do that, you have to have leadership classes and stuff. You never hit classless society. Well, the thing about extreme democracy, what people are in the classical tradition, advocates of extreme democracy are seen as underneath wanting tyranny because everyone knows that an extreme democracy would simply collapse into tyranny. And people didn't trust advocates of extreme democracy because of it. That might have been a, a classed kind of thing, but there's maybe something to this that, you know, because even when I, when I'm talking about like, you know, like trans utopian, you know, pipe dreams with Sophia, we're talking about like, you know, maybe what a future communist government could look like. We still kind of feel like that there would be maybe like a directly democratic house of something. And then, you know, a more like world Republic representative body or something. You also have checks on democracy. You would have to have checks on democracy. Otherwise like minority positions such as your own. Yeah. Eradicated. I mean, potentially. Maybe we have like a beautiful society of tolerance and whatever, but maybe yeah. we only have it for gender and, and yeah. race hasn't been figured out and, and you know, or, or what have you. Yeah, what have you? I mean, like, but we, we run into this when we talk about the national problem. Like, the, the national problem is where this all shows up. I mean, like, the Stalinists get into this. Like, you want to accept the autonomy of, uh, of nations, right? Well, what do you do when the Ukrainian farmers don't want to give you their fucking grain because they're starving? And, and then you also turn, I mean, Stalin literally after that point turns his back on Lenin's national policy and goes to Russification. That actually is what happens. Well, th this is, uh, again, the Federalist that makes a position arguing for minority rights are ironically the minority that it's mainly most interested in protecting the rich. is the rich. <laughs> that's, that's what it's most interested in protecting. But the, the you know, the overall argument does make a, a certain case for liberal individual rights that's it's hard to stomach that it's articulated specifically in terms of the rich, but you would have to take it seriously. You know, if, if you're for, you know, self-determination of nations, or even if you're for like, you know, an element of women's autonomy or queer autonomy or what have you, like basic questions of majoritarianism. Which I mean, I think and McNair does take those things seriously coming in front of the, the queer rights movement. I actually, I mean, like to me, I'm not. I'm not actually siding with radical, with like radical democracy here, except in so much that we're supposed to want a classless society. For me, this actually points out some fundamental things that we have not worked through as socialists, really. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of why I wanted to start with the ass end of this essay first, because I actually think the discussion that Cockshot has here about radical democracy is super important and very interesting. But because of the crazy shit he says up front, I find it impossible to take his formulation of it at face value, even though I think it's one of the best 
version. It's one of the best conversations on the subject available. I haven't seen people make the Aristotelian point that, you know, this is all, you know, elections are aristocratic instruments, right? Do you ever hear that? No one, no one really applies that consistently. And I would like to, you know, kind of get more and into, you know, understanding why Aristotle thought sortition was more democratic, understanding how sortition, you know, like, do we really need, you know, that much of a political specialist class? Wouldn't a lot of sortition maybe liquidate some of it? Well, sortition incentivizes being competent in everything because you might be called to do it. Cool. Yeah, which is like virtue, like that is democratic virtue. That's Um, cool. But Aristotle feels that that's impossible. Like Aristotle doesn't think every cook can govern because of their natures, right? Like, so that's... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Aristotle thinks that, you know, slavery is sort of natural and defensible. Natural, justified, yeah. And hopefully, uh, you know, in our utopia, we educate everybody very well. I I meant to say earlier, Derek, that if you want me to kill the engineers, I can get a cheap Ryanair flight over to Madrid probably tomorrow <laughs> and, uh, and do it for you. Hey, hey, wait a minute. You, you have to at least I mean, let Puya design our, our you know, complex systems model. Come on. I mean, Puya, I mean, tough, and give tough, me a, tough, give tough. Me a, have you ever heard of that TV show 24? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you think about it, Tom, I mean, what's there's a uniform probability distribution of finding me over the area. And I mean, <laughs> if you take the differential area of an integrate over that, what, what's the probability? What's the probability uh, you think you'll find me? Yeah, how many Iranian chemical physicists are in Madrid? It should be fucking simple. Oh, man. Probably um, not many. <laughs> I think one. <laughs> So, like, getting back to this, like, does council communism have, does not even, like, none of these forms go full on towards this sortition method. No major commie has ever mm. argued for this. That's true, isn't it? Uh, no, um, uh, uh, CLR James was a big advocate of sortition. I was in a CLR James library about three weeks ago. That's Marxist humanist. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I'm glad there's a library named after him. I mean, still a dystopia, but cool. Yeah, so uh, there's it's a, a great minority of the socialist tradition actually does this because socialism was associated, you know, especially in, in Europe. I mean, I, I really throughout the world, I guess, you know, aside from maybe like a few places where the mass vote is introduced from the right. But, you know, it's associated with struggling for electoral rights. And yeah, freedoms. But, also, but also is, I mean, if you look at its origins, I mean, like the early Republicans and the socialists and, and anarchists couldn't even tell each other apart. Seriously. Yeah. They thought they I mean, were all on the same side. And yeah. for like a brief shining moment in history in Europe, they were for like a day. But, and then they lost. And Not then they long. were on the same side again. We were talking about majoritarianism a second ago. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say that... Um, I don't think it's like that much of a probably going to be that much of an issue on political problems, but I think like in the economic planning, sometimes I'm concerned that like some places won't get developed enough. I am too. You know? Yeah. Or, like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or like, yeah, I think that's like I think that might be like 
I think maybe, like, the planning should be, like, you know, they, we should just, like, calculate that and, like, opt- you know what I mean? Like, there should just be an algorithm for that. So, I mean, one one characteristic of Athenian democracy, though, was that elections existed occasionally, right? Usually for um, generalships. Yeah, generalships, yeah. Um, it ended up being a weirdly military society, too. Yes, uh, which, you know, is consistent with uh, McNair's uh, call for a universal uh, military service, right? Yeah, it's um, and, 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 and yeah, like it, you can't really have a consistent democracy in the Aristotelian sense without like everybody kind of being on board with military service. Because mm-hmm. as, as we've already established, yeah, it's like you kind of have to be a little bit of everything, including a soldier. And of course, you have to defend democracy, which is, you know, <laughs> the Athenians didn't manage to do. I mean, you are talking about the only society that lasted less time in the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the only one, you know, that's talked about more, you know, especially more per year, you know, like prorated per year, like cultural impact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're talking about like flash pans in history, like you got the Soviet Union, you got Athenian democracy, like right there. What about that? The Iroquois, or what about them? How long did they last? About 100. The Iroquois Federation, about 100 years. Oh, damn. There you go. Three of them. There we go. Three. That's honestly, that's that's the only like comparable large kind of constitutional body I can really think of. And by the way, it was super influential on America until we scrapped it for the Constitution. Because, like, the yeah. Arctic Confederation were actually based on the Iroquois Confederation because yeah. uh, Ben Franklin, not Thomas Franklin, Ben Franklin was big in the cultural appropriation, you know? A lot of the state governments were also inf- influenced by uh, Iroquois Confederation kind of Constitution documents. But the Iroquois weren't uh, sortition, though. So they were just, like, representative, weren't they? They weren't sortition. Um, that I'm not sure, actually. I, I don't know enough about the Iroquois Con- Confederation. I think, I think different tribal, different tribes in, like, I think they were a representative on the, on the confederational scale, but different tribes, um, organized their internal, you know, tribal societies differently. I mean, a lot of them really were ruled by like consensus and like the oldest people in the room would have a meeting. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Swampside Chats.